This is the pre-hospital edition of the Advanced Analgesia Podcast. Our goal is better, safer, comprehensive pain control in the field and for our patients. Welcome back. In this episode, we're going to discuss the nitty-gritty of all the medications which you as EMS providers can now use to provide better, safer, comprehensive pain control in the pre-hospital setting. And with us, we are joined by our resident expert, clinical pharmacologist extraordinaire, Dr. Rachel Duncan, who is going to be running us through multiple medications. And what I'm going to do for the setup is I'm going to throw a medication out to Rachel, and then she's going to discuss the nitty-gritty of that medication, the when we should use it, the contraindications, and when it's used in clinical practice. And we'll do this for all the medications which you now have access to. I'm ready. Fire away, Don. Rachel, let's start with something easy. Let's start with acetaminophen, also known as Tylenol. Absolutely. I I would challenge you to tell me a patient who couldn't receive acetaminophen one gram. And there are definitely a couple. If, if it's a patient who knows that they have hepatic failure or they are severely jaundiced or yellow or you know they're going to be getting their abdomen tapped, absolutely avoid acetaminophen in those obvious patients. But in general, I think some of the cautions that I hear about not wanting to maybe use acetaminophen one gram is, is just from that hepatic dysfunction. And I would say, again, unless it's known or it's obvious, I feel very comfortable with pretty much any patient receiving one gram of acetaminophen times one from you in the pre-hospital setting. And of course, we have that orally, which we can be given en route, which it can be very effective and really set that patient up for the next six hours, which is great. And very likely what they're going to be part of the multimodal pain control that they go home on. Um, or in those that cannot tolerate it orally, they have just severe nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, can't maybe participate in taking things orally, you now have a great tool of IV acetaminophen, which comes in a little 50cc vial, which can be hung over 10 minutes. So even if that's still dripping when that patient rolls into the ER, that's okay. It, it's gotten it on board for that patient who may or may not get pain control right away once they get to a busy ER. So I would really put acetaminophen into every patient that presents with pain that would like it treated. It shows up first line in every pathway. Again, if someone's in pain and they would like some type of pain control option um, pharmacologically, I would challenge you to always consider a gram of acetaminophen. So let's go to our next agent, which is an NSAID. Can you talk about the two NSAIDs in our pathways, their dosing, and then their contraindications and potential benefits? Yeah, and, and NSAIDs, again, are just a backbone of every type of pain. And they are just so great in combination with acetaminophen. We know that those two agents alone are great. Those two agents together, the evidence shows us, they are amazing. They are literally first line for many things. They have been compared head-to-head -head with opioids for many types of pain, acute extremity pain and fracture, dislocations, all of that. And they've really found to be more efficacious um, with much less side effects. So, so become a believer in acetaminophen plus an NSAID. Now, our two options that we're going to have will be our good old-fashioned oral ibuprofen. And so, again, this is nice. Even if it's not going to act immediately when you have the patient in your rig, it is going to kick in and give them a good six hours of pain relief 
and it's what they're likely going to go home on. So we're going to go with ibuprofen, 400 milligrams. We know that any dose above that does not give us any better pain control, so we're just going to cap it. We also have our IV or IM options. So we have Ketorolac, 10 milligrams, which can be given IV. We have historically given higher doses, more like 30 milligrams IV and 60 IM. But we have good dosing studies to say, no, nothing above 10 milligrams gets better pain control. So why would we introduce more risk of giving higher doses of an NSAID when we're not getting any greater benefit? And so let's talk about some of those risks that we're concerned with. So we've always, of course, are concerned with renal dysfunction. We want to avoid it in any patient who has chronic kidney disease, or let's see, you, you see that they have a dialysis catheter humming, or they know, yes, I, I have been told I have um, kidney disease. We, we're going to avoid it in those patients. Other patients that we're going to have caution in are going to be a significant cardiac history of MIs. Those are the types of patients where we might let the doctor in the ER decide if that's appropriate for that patient and, and defer that decision. Other patients that we might consider avoiding it are those that are on anticoagulants. So we're talking our classic blood thinners like warfarin, if they inject themselves with things like anoxaparin or lobanox, if they're on any of those newer agents like dabigatran, which is prodaxa, if it's rivaroxaban, which is Xarelto, or the other common one is apixaban. So those are sort of the, the big ones that I think of. Now, I think some of the gray area that we think about are what about those patients on a baby aspirin or on Plavix, right, after a stroke? And I think in those patients, you just, you have to weigh risk-benefit. You know, we're talking about using much lower doses of NSAIDs than we did historically. And so I have a much greater comfort level with using those low doses in patients that are, just have a baby aspirin on their list. So definitely nice that it just allows us to use this in more patients. And then just a very, very elderly, I get more concerned. <laughs> if they're 90 years old, I'm much less likely to pull the trigger on an NSAID just because, I mean, whether I know their medical history or not, they could are more likely to have some type of renal dysfunction or have an interacting medication on their med list or have acquired another comorbidity in their 90 years that it really cautions you with the NSAID. So I, I would have caution. And then with just major trauma and bleeding, um, of course, we're just going to be extra careful and avoid those NSAIDs. So those are really the populations I think of. And then, of course, the classic, like I, I coughed up blood this morning. I think I have a bleeding ulcer. Again, not going to use it in those patients. Great. And I think one of the things to highlight there is, is while a lot of patients will have doubts, why are you giving me Tylenol and ibuprofen? This is something I could take at home that just giving them the knowledge that this is actually as efficacious as opioids is oftentimes really important to speak from the science and not from the drug advertising of the only thing that's a painkiller is an yes. opioid. And for this, we know that Tylenol and ibuprofen or Tylenol and Ketorolac is actually really efficacious, amazing pain control, which is safe, non-sedating, non-euphoria producing and provides most patients with great pain relief. So that's why they're first line indications in 100% of our alto pathways with those caveats that Rachel mentioned before. So Rachel, let's get into a newer agent that, that's now going to be new to RIGS, which is olanzapine. Can you talk a little bit about olanzapine and when we should consider using it and not using it? 
Yeah, you know, I think when we say olanzapine, a lot of folks really think of maybe like our DSM-4 and 5 disorders, um, population treatment, a psychiatric type treatment. Um, and, and it does have some of the, those components, right? It acts on our dopaminergic system, our serotonergic system, which modulate things like that, but also modulate pain. The other important things about those pathways is that they're also very concentrated in the abdomen, meaning your abdominal system and your GI tract, so very associated um, with abdominal pain or nausea and vomiting. So this is a really great agent that we're using it at very low doses that don't really start getting into the psychiatric treatment doses that we would be using. So for example, if I had a schizophrenic patient on this medication, I might be giving something like a 10 milligram dose. We're really recommending that you start at something like a two and a half milligram dose, right? And so this can be given IM or IV. There are oral and sublingual products that can be transitioned to outpatient but just a, a really great agent that hits many different types of non-opioid receptors that are going, going to help specifically with things like abdominal pain, cyclic vomiting, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, right? That's one that we're seeing more and more. Let's say it's an abdominal type migraine um, or a cyclic type migraine, and then just anything that has a nausea vomiting component. Um, I really feel like this is our, our becoming our go-to antiemetic at this point. So just a really powerful tool in your toolbox now. And it's not appropriate in every patient, just like a, most medications, right? Have some contraindications. So um, if they already have a significant psychiatric history and are on big doses of antipsychotics, not going to be the one that I reach for in that patient, right? Due to interactions and the fa- and the likelihood that it's it's not going to be very efficacious for them. Other types of patients that I'm going to avoid it in are going to be those that are are dopaminergic depleted, and so that's going to be things like our Parkinson's disease. And so that's actually a very important contraindication with this type of medication. If a patient has is tremulous, um, it has a history of Parkinson's disease, I'm really going to avoid it in that patient, not use it because it's really going to induce them to be um, very tremulous and shaking. Probably the worst thing you could do for a Parkinson's patient. And then just the elderly in general. I mean, this is on the beers list. It can be very sedating in the elderly. So when we start getting above 65 or 70, I'm either avoiding it or I'm starting very low at that two and a half milligram and I'm not combining it with other sedating agents. So those are really some of the patient populations where I would and would not use this very exciting new agent. And how about magnesium? Magnesium is, of course, an element that we often use for a variety of different conditions like asthma, et cetera. But what's the role of magnesium in pain? Yeah, magnesium is a really fun element. It's a cofactor in like every reaction in our body. I could go on and on about that. But for pain, what we think is that it really affects um, the NMDA receptor and acts on that and makes it more effective. And so that uh, by being an NMDA antagonist, right, NMDA is an excitatory pathway. If we can antagonize that. We're going to pipe down some of that overexcitement that can contribute to pain. And so magnesium is one very benign way that we can do that. Again, magnesium is one of those elements where I'm like, tell me a patient that can't get magnesium. And I just can't think of anyone unless you have their labs, which you're not going to. 
and they're already very hypermagnesinate. And that's very unlikely. I mean, maybe in your most severe renal patient that has missed dialysis for a week, you know. But in general, I feel very comfortable giving a gram. So pull up one gram out of a vial. I'm going to shoot that into a mini bag. I'm going to drip that in over 15, 20 minutes as I transport them to the hospital. It may still be dripping in when I drop them off, but that's going to modulate that NMDA system, which is so great for pain. This shows up in, in a few of our pathways, you know, I think where it really shines, of course, and the, and the most evidence specific to this indication is in migraine. So headache, migraine, this should be a part of most cocktails that you give if you have time to get this started, um, you know, after you sort of get the patient situated and give your oral and IV push medications, start to drip this in. But yeah, that's where this one really shines with that NMDA pathway. Okay, Rachel. So along the lines of stuff that we infuse via IV, we have a new exciting agent, which many of our paramedics may remember from way back in the day, which is IV lidocaine. But in this case, we're of course not using it for arrhythmia, but using it for pain. So when can we use IV lidocaine for pain and how does it work? Yeah, that's another oldie but goodie that's just like making a comeback, right? So I love it. Um, you know, IV lidocaine is an exciting one. As we sort of talked about magnesium working on the NMDA receptor pathway, lidocaine does too. And so again, sort of blunting that excitatory pathway and just a great um, target for pain. Also affects sodium channels. That's where we get some of our antiarrhythmic properties, but also we think can attribute to lowering the pain threshold. And so really, really nice dual mechanism of action for IV lidocaine. You know, it really in the ER has specifically been studied in patients with renal colic. So head-to-head studies with things like morphine, right? And found to be as or more efficacious with fewer side effects. So definitely any patient presenting with renal colic, if you have time to get this started, please go ahead and do it for those patients as long as they don't have a contraindication. So let's talk through some of those contraindications. Who would I not give it to? Well, at higher doses, it, you know, any antiarrhythmic can also be prorhythmic. And so we just want to be cautious with these agents. Um, you know, at, at the doses that we're recommending, a one-time dose, I feel relatively confident that we're not going to see any of those arrhythmia issues. But if a patient already has arrhythmia, they come to you with issues like heart block or AFib. Um, or any type of arrhythmia, I am not going to use this agent. <laughs> if their medication list tells you that they're being treated for an arrhythmia, right? You see amiodarone or sodalol or ticosin on that med list, I'm not going to use this. So if I have a known contraindication, I will avoid it. But overall, I feel like I said pretty confident that, the, that these doses are going to be safe. And so what is the dose we're talking about? So the dose we're talking about is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. So you're going to calculate that out. We have nice dosing sheets that will help you do that based on the patient weight. Again, push that into a mini bag and drip that in over 10 minutes. Patient does not need to be on telemetry to receive this medication. Like I said, if they don't have one of those known contraindications, I feel really comfortable giving it to patients, particularly with renal colic, but it also shows up on other pathways. So abdominal pain um, and then headache, migraine, it's an option. So again, just a, a really new, exciting tool in your toolkit that you can be using for patients. 
So here's an easy one that has a relatively narrow therapeutic application, but let's talk a little bit about famotidine or Pepsid. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think for those patients who come to you with abdominal pain where it's gastritis and um, then you think that they're might, you know, they have a history of GERD or something or have a history of an ulcer um, or something like that. And, and even if they're already on a PPI or something, um, obviously they're having an exacerbation. The nice thing about famotidine is an H2 receptor antagonist. It's going to immediately, very quickly stop some of that acid production and block it in the stomach and get them uh, contribute to their pain relief. So I would say for those patients, you know, that have abdominal pain and have one of those suspicious things that, that make you think, okay, I wonder if they, they are having an ulcer or a really bad reflux. I think that famotidine can, can be a really nice option. I mean, what would you have done for them previously, right? Like you're not going to give that patient a potent opioid, most likely. You would have just done nothing. And now you have an, an agent that you can get on board, you can give it IV push, um, and it really starts working quite quickly. So let's now get into controlled substances. And these are things, of course, that many EMS providers have been using for years now. But we do want to highlight just some of the aspects of them. And let's actually just go through a full run-through of ketamine and what ketamine is useful for and in whom it is contraindicated. Yeah, ketamine, it shows up currently under sort of that controlled substance slash opioid pathway, but I, I definitely think it's a, it's a nice link between the opioids and then the altos. Although it does act on the opioid receptor, it acts differently than opioids, so it's really, really nice um, for maybe those patients that are on chronic opioid therapy um, where that mu receptor portion is, is already occupied. It, it's going to act slightly differently. And then also you can just bypass that completely with its other mechanism, which is an NMDA receptor antagonist, which we've talked about and how that works. So just a really nice agent, um, like you said, more potent than things like magnesium or lidocaine, but very, very effective. Um, you know, historically, and what EMS crews are currently using ketamine for at much higher doses are going to be for its sedating dissociative effects, right? So Things like excited delirium, you know, someone who's really amped up on methamphetamines, um, you just need to, to make them safe and you safe and get them in a better position. A big slug of IM or IV ketamine is going to get you there. We're talking about tiny doses in comparison. So we really dose this conservatively at 0.2 milligrams per kilogram IV push. You know, if you need to get that in the patient quickly for some very acute pain to be able to move them, absolutely, it's fine to give that over two or three minutes, just kind of warning them that this is going to make you feel a little bit funny. That's one of the ways it works, but it's really going to help your pain. Um, you can kind of bypass that and skip the IV and do intranasal if you would like, and that would be 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and we max that at 50 that same dose, the 0.5 per kilo, can be given intramuscularly. So it's a nice agent. It's very versatile. You know, who I wouldn't use it in are those with any um, really significant cardiac history, just due to the fact that it can sort of amp up folks' vital signs. So it can increase blood pressure, increase heart rate, although at these very small doses, nothing like what you would see if you gave it to that excited delirium patient. It also would avoid in folks with PTSD, that's an important one. 
some of that dissociation, if that did happen, you can, you know, push them into flashbacks. And I really would hate for that patient to have to experience a flashback during an already sort of acute moment. Um, So I would definitely avoid it in, in those patient populations. You know, Don, some, sometimes I think what we've historically heard is, hey, we need to avoid this in those with a head injury or a possible head injury, right? And the theoretical risk there is an increase in intracranial pressure just due to the fact that it, it can increase um, heart rate and blood pressure, right? And so it will increase ICP. What we've found in studies is that that isn't anything clinically significant, so I actually feel pretty comfortable using it in my multi-trauma, head trauma patients. Um, it's actually been studied extensively in the pre-hospital setting in the trauma population. That's some of our best literature to support the use of, of ketamine. So I really, I like it in those patients. And then, you know, that last patient population where I really think about it is, is those that are maybe already having a respiratory issue with low O2 saturations or you're just kind of worried about that airway. You don't want to have to tube them. You just really don't want to suppress that respiratory drive with an opioid, but you need something stronger. And, and that's going to be ketamine. Um, it's not going to decrease that respiratory drive. Um, it's going to be really safe for that patient. And, and so that's where I like it. Great. And now, Rachel, we've, we've been using morphine and fentanyl for years and years in the pre-hospital setting. But why don't you give us, instead of how this works, which I think most of us as pre-hospital providers are well aware of, let's talk about when it doesn't work or when it's contraindicated. So which patients do you feel like we have a relative contraindication for an opioid and should be avoiding it? Yeah, and these are these are also great agents, right? It's we we are never anti-opioid. Don't use them. We're just saying, hey, you got a lot of other really cool evidence-based things to use. So I think folks that you really hesitate using an opioid are those that are already super nauseous or already vomiting. That opioid is not going to help that patient, especially when you load them up, put them backwards in an ambulance, and drive to the hospital. So. I just think before you would have been in kind of a bind or had to, you know, maybe go to ketamine or something, but those patients are are not going to like getting an opioid. Other ones are are those patients already on chronic high-dose opioid therapy uh, who have, I mean, if they've not been able to take their medications or keep them down for some reason, that's another story. But those patients who are in, you know, high-dose chronic opioid therapy, I just think, like you said, Don, you're going to get diminishing returns for any IV dose you put on top of it and just sort of risk over sedation. So you're really not going to get the benefit. Um, so again, that's when I would go with something like ketamine for a very severe pain or one of our many other altos that especially affect the NMDA receptor pathway is sort of a go-to. And then, like I mentioned before, those that you're just worried about their respiratory drive, you do not want to have to intubate this 92-year-old lady with an O2 stat of 86, right? Um, Maybe her blood pressure is a little soft. You just don't want to drop any of that and put yourself in a bad situation trying to get her safely to the ER. And and that's where I'm also going to avoid opioids because it, it is going to decrease the respiratory drive. Or if you need to use them, start really really low. It's okay to start with 12 and a half if you need to in, in that itty bitty old lady who you think it might be the best option for and put some oxygen on her. But again, we're, we're trying not to cause harm. And sometimes there are situations where opioids are, have a high likelihood of causing harm that we want to avoid them in. How about conditions, Rachel, such as migraine headache or back pain yeah. 
What what's the evidence in opioids with those patient populations? Yeah, we have. I mean, you really hit the two on the head where we have overwhelming evidence to say that not only is it not helpful, but it's harmful. And so I, I think that that should be a big hesitation or just a outright no. And 99% of the, those patient populations that are experiencing headache, migraine, kind of chronic functional abdominal pain, anything under the abdominal pain pathway that you don't think is like some type of surgical, you know, emergency, maybe that's appropriate to, to give a dose. But those are, are certainly pain indications where we know it's not effective and it can actually cause short and long-term harm. Also, non-traumatic kind of chronic lower back pain is another one where we know that if you put them on the opioid train and they end up on chronic opioids, they are going to have much worse long-term outcomes, more likely to miss work, be on disability, have more pain over time. Other conditions where I would always hesitate or not use them would be like dental pain, right? Where you can you can get them an NSAID and get them in where they can have some type of block till they can get to the dentist. I'm trying to think of other ones, cyclic vomiting. Obviously, I would never use it. Neuropathic pain, I would avoid it. Don, any others you can think of that you would add to that list? No, no. I think that that was actually a very comprehensive list, Rachel. And what I think that we have to realize in the pre-hospital setting is that with all of those indications that Rachel mentioned, you might actually get patients stating that they feel a little relief in the back of your ambulance. But long-term, we know that that medication actually causes harm. So like Rachel mentioned, in low back pain, it causes increased disability. In patients with migraine headaches, it, it increases the chance they have a rebound migraine and are back in the emergency department 48 hours after they've been discharged. In patients with chronic functional abdominal pain, cyclic vomiting, cannabis hyperemesis, you increase the chance the patient is going to have another exacerbation of that underlying neurologic condition within the next few days to weeks. So again, we want to be playing chess with patients' long-term health. And that starts with the first agents that they get in the pre-hospital setting. It starts with you, and then it should be carried through through the rest of their medical care in the hospital and beyond. So really, we're just trying to infuse science and evidence into every facet of the medical system, beginning with our pre-hospital providers. Yeah, and Don, I would add to that, and just to that point is providing pain control is not just in that immediate moment, although you may have a, a fairly quick interaction with that patient, it's that first touch point, and it might be their only treatment that they get for the next few hours. They may arrive at a very busy ER where they're not able to be seen or treated immediately. So you really need to think, okay, immediate period right now, what do I need to do? But also start thinking more long-term for the next two to six hours for that patient once they arrive to the ER. You may be saying, why would I be giving them oral acetaminophen and oral you know, Motrin? And that's why you're trying to set them up for the next six hours. And then other practical things that I, that I talk about besides just kind of the nitty gritty of the meds and the sciences, take into consideration how long is your transit time. Some of these are IV piggyback, a few of them, but many of them oral can be given very quickly, IV push. So I would start with those always, and then if you have time, start the IV drips that can still be hanging once they get there. And then, like you said, consider contraindications. What can't you give that patient? And then go from there. And then obviously just following the basics of that, that acetaminophen plus an NSAID, it really 
really kind of probably noticed was our answer for for pretty much every pathway. So I guess that would be sort of my overall approach as pre-hospital providers that I don't know that we've necessarily had that approach in the past. And then, oh, by the way, this is just one small part of advanced analgesia, the medications. The other equally or maybe more important parts are the part, um, Don, that you already talked about with the pain psychology and that compassionate communication. Um, so, so again, this is just one small piece of the advanced analgesia puzzle. Oh, thank you, Rachel. And now let's see what this looks like. So in our next few podcasts, eight in total, we're going to actually go through specific cases and specific approaches to pain control that show how we put all these medications into use. So please listen in.